The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. I just want to say, it's, it's an honor to be your pastor. I think it's way above what I deserve for you guys to be mindful of, of me and our other pastors through the month of October. And like after the honor of standing next to my bride and having the kiddos that I have, pastoring this church is, is probably in the top tier of things that I get the most honor out of doing. It's an honor to be your pastor. So thank you for that. Um, I do have a, a quick announcement, though. Well, guys... This is the last Sunday in this gym, right? <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So I, that slide is up there uh, with, with a, uh, an address. So if you come here next week at 10 a.m., you're going to be by yourself, all right? So make sure you write down this address. Uh, this is where we're going to be at on Sunday, 10 a.m. We're going to be gathering as a church like we always do, but just in a way cooler building. All right, so I'm excited about this. Um, and actually, what we got going on this week, your missional communities aren't going to meet like normal. What's going to happen is you're going to bring your food uh, to the new church building, um, and you are going to eat with your MC family. And then we got some projects to knock out in order to get prepared for our coming Sunday. Uh, so make sure you're coordinating with your MCs about what that looks like, um, and then just be ready to work. It, we, we probably have some painting to do. We've got some stuff to throw away. There's, I mean, that church has been around for hundred and some years. There's a lot of junk in there that just probably needs to be uh, taken to a dumpster, and so we're going to clear a little space out and make more space for the people who aren't here yet. Um, and so I'm super excited about that. It's going to be a crazy awesome week, um, and so that is something that I hope that you, you seize an opportunity to get involved with. Um, so if, if you've got a little break during your week at any point and you just want to come hang out and paint or just talk or whatever, uh, my, uh, my office door is open all week long. So Come and hang out, bring a paintbrush or something, and and we can knock a bunch of stuff out. Let's pray, and uh, and we'll get to the word. Father, we we bless you because you have blessed us greatly in the gospel. This morning was a great reminder to be led in worship, that because of what Christ has done, we are yours forevermore. And so we give you thanks. Thanks. praise you for that, Father, and I pray 
That for those of, who can say, those of us who can say that, Father, that you would build us up in our faith. And for those who cannot yet say that, that maybe, I don't know if I belong to Jesus. I pray, Father, that this morning your spirit would move in a way that just makes it clear that the spirit of God has moved in and caused someone to be born again. So, Father, we come to your word just eager to hear from you. Eager. Would you meet us here this morning? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, I, I love the TV show The Office. Like, I've probably watched the whole thing all the way through at least five times. Like, I just love it. And so what happens is I, I like, relate to, what th- like, the things that go on around me to, like, snippets of The Office. Like, we were just talking back in prayer, and somebody said something. It's like, oh, it's like that scene in The Office where blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like my, my life relates to things for some reason in terms of the office, and, and like, I, I just love the show, and so I kind of like dive into it, I, you know, when, I, when, I'm not, when I'm working around the house, or I'm just chilling out, I turn it on Netflix, and I watch the office, but here's the deal, I'm starting to get bored with the office, right, and this isn't like a request for your favorite TV shows, that's not what I'm getting at, I'm starting to get bored with the office, but when I come to the word of God with you every week, it's like my mind explodes, right? When I sit down in sermon prep, I'm like, this is genius. How have I not seen this before? And so I hope this morning as we're going through the Word of God and we're studying together, I hope that you have this renewed zeal, this new, renewed taste, this sweetness to what God says to us in His Word that you just dive in. And typically, when I'm my hope, that's what, like when I set out to write a sermon, that's my hope, is that we like have this, we dive in, like I can p- pitch an introduction that, um, that like captivates you a little bit, like wh- why should I listen to you, Sam, right, what, what does this have to do with my, my life, like what, what's, what's this all about, you know, like so my hope is to have this an introduction that sort of like sucks you in a little bit, and, and really week to week, it, it's kind of an art form really, because every week we end up in the same spot. Right? We might start in a different spot, and really that's what it is. I'm trying, I'm trying to be creative in how we get to the same spot each, each week. It's like, it's like taking a different route home from work every day. Right? We're going to the same spot, but we're getting there a different route. And so in that sense, it's an, it's an art form. And if you've been around, you know where I end up each week. It's, it's with Jesus, right? We end up with the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And so it... Really, if you're analyzing my sermons from week to week, which I hope you're not analyzing, I hope like you're just sitting and, and like basking in the word and not like, because if you analyze it, you'll find a lot of flaws. But, but if you were to analyze my sermons, you'd find that we end in the same place each week. It should be no shock to you at this point. And so that's kind of who we are. We as a church are all about Jesus. And if you're wanting a church that ends somewhere besides Jesus, this isn't going to be the church for you because I feel my calling as a pastor, as even if I'm not a pastor, if God takes me to, to the secular world to work, my life goal, my life work is to point people to Jesus. And that's what we believe as a church, that we're all about Jesus. We're here to get to Jesus. And so the sermon introduction, in a sense, functions as like an inroad to get to Jesus. It's to highlight how bad you need him, and even sometimes to, to highlight the places where you need him that you didn't know that you needed him. But every now and then, we get a, a passage that doesn't let me hold on to Jesus until the end, right? Right? 
It makes me show my hand up front. Like, the, the, that's like what this text is today. Like, it's, it's straight up about Jesus. And so when we come to a text like this, like we can't ignore it. We can't ignore Jesus. We can't put him off. We can't sidestep him because he's right there. We have to deal with Jesus. And that's kind of the irony of today's passage. Because not only are, is it, you know, we're talking about Jesus right up front, but, but the message that we have here today is that you must deal with Jesus. There's no putting him off. So you have to acknowledge him. You, you can't escape it. There's no sidestepping. There's no dodging. It's, it's right there in your lap. And what Peter's going to tell us today is that there are two ways that people can respond to Jesus. You're either going to respond this way or you're going to respond that way. That's two, two options. And here's the thing. This is why, this is, here's, here's why I'm telling you that this is why you need to listen up here. Because the most important thing about you, the most important thing about you is how you respond to Jesus. It's not your job. It's not how much you're worth. It's not how great your kids are or what they've achieved or where, what neighborhood you live in. The most important thing about you is how you respond to Jesus. And A.W. Tozer, who's a, a pastor, theologian, has this quote that, along these lines. It says, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God, right? What, what he's saying there is the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about Jesus, how you respond to Jesus. And here's my challenge for you this morning. Don't think that just because you're in a church service that you have made the right decision. Right? Don't think that just because you're here gathered with God's people that you've actually made the right decision towards Jesus because the, the, the equivalent of that would be me standing in the garage and thinking that I'm a car. Right? Just because I'm in that atmosphere doesn't make me a car. See, this is one of Satan's most deceptive schemes. Right? He makes you think that you have a right, spot, a right response toward Jesus based upon your geography, where you find yourself on Sunday morning. And what Jesus says in Matthew 25 is incredibly alarming. Right? This is a passage where, where, where Jesus is talking about sorting the sheep from the goats. And in this scenario, there are church people who are doing church things that come to Jesus and he says, I'm sorry, I didn't know you. Depart from me. The sheep get to enter in. The people who belong to Jesus get to enter into the kingdom of God and experience joy forever. And the people who thought they were doing it, the people who it seemed from the outside were doing the right things, Jesus says, depart from me. See, what what Jesus frames up in that scenario, he's getting to the eternal consequences of this decision, right? One hand, you you enter into the kingdom of God and live happy life forevermore, and the other hand, you don't, right? He, He calls it eternal punishment. It's not a happy place. See, the the response that you have about Jesus isn't only about if you go to heaven or if you go to hell. The response that you have toward Jesus has implications on your everyday life. 
And that is what our passage is getting at today. That Peter is, is, though he is concerned with your eternal future, right? If you're going to enjoy God in heaven forever, if you're not going to. But he also has this concern, has this burden for the everyday life of a Christian. Right? What's your everyday response to Jesus? How does your response to Jesus affect your everyday living? And so that's where we're going today in our sermon. We're going to look at the two responses that you can have to Jesus. And then as like a bonus for you, right? we're, we're going to look at the, what an everyday life looks like when you're making the right response to Jesus. So that's, that's where we're going today. And so if you want to open up your Bibles, uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's going to be up on the screen behind me. Um, but it's also going to, there's Bibles down at your feet. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, would you take a Bible home? That's, that's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God. Um, and if, if you flip to that, it's at the back of your Bible. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, and this is how it starts. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone. Right, so Peter, Peter starts out in this passage by giving us a new way to look at Jesus. Right? This is a new description that Peter has for Jesus, for the people that are listening to him right, or reading his writings. And so he, in a sense, he's like explaining what Jesus is like. He's like, you know, you know that Jesus guy that we talk about all the time? He's like... Uh, He's like a stone that's, uh, it's, he's got a breath, like he's, he's got a heartbeat, like a, like a living stone. Does that make sense to you? And everybody's like, no, that doesn't make sense to me. Right, what's a living stone? But what Peter's getting at after here is the resurrection of Jesus that is central to the message of the gospel. See, for Peter, the resurrection isn't like some bonus piece to the doctrine of faith. But the resurrection influences every piece of Peter's theology, right? If you, if you trace this through, if you're looking for resurrection language, if you're looking for living language, start out going through 1 Peter chapter 1, that you've been born again. You have a living hope because you have a living Savior. That living Savior has saved you for an imperishable, which means a forever living inheritance. See, the resurrection is so crucial to Peter's theology. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is completely unique from everything else. There is no other living stone to compare Jesus to. Jesus is in his own category. See, everything on earth right now will either die, or it's already dead, or it will one day die, right? It's going to die, but Jesus is unique in that he's never going to die. He has overcome sin, death, and the grave once and for all, that he is going on and on and on forever. And, and even if you look in the New Testament, like follow this, this idea of the resurrection, time and time again, Jesus is described as a living version of a non-living living object. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Now, the dead don't procreate. You can't do it when you're dead. But Jesus is the living thing that comes out of death. So Peter's theology is saturated with resurrection language. And what he's saying here is that Jesus is unique to everything else. Because what Jesus claims 
about himself. Like when you look at it, when you, when you look at what Jesus is claiming, that he's the Lord, that he is the Son of God, that he is God, that he's the rescuer, the redeemer, all these things that he claims to be, you have to look at it and you have to analyze either this is incredibly brilliant or this is ridiculously foolish. Either way, you have to respond to him. C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Mere Christianity, kind of frames it up like this. Like you, you hear Jesus speak about himself, the claims that he makes, right? that he is the Son of God, that he, he can do the things that he did, heal people and, and make the dead come alive. He can do it. So you either walk away with one of three assessments here. Either he's a liar, that, that he didn't actually do the things that he said he did, that, that he's making this stuff up. And he somehow he got a bunch of people to go along with it. He's either a lunatic that he's just deranged, right? He's living in a, a, a delusion, a, an alternate reality. Or he says, you'll see him as Lord. You'll see him as what he's saying about himself is, is true, that he's actually the son of God, the living water, living bread, bread of life. But if you boil that down, just one, come on, he gave you three three options, right? Liar, lord, or lunatic. But if you even boil that down one step further, right, it comes down to this, your response to Jesus. You either accept him, you either embrace him, or you reject him. You turn him away. See, that's what verse four is getting at when we go right back to it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. See, Peter is using a construction analogy here. Right? Most of the people that Peter is writing to at this time are common laborers. Right? They know pretty much one thing. They know how to build stuff. And, and when you're building things back in those days, building houses, building homes, they didn't pour foundations like we get to pour concrete foundations now. They used stones to set the foundation. And so the builder would come and he'd, he'd look through all the stones that they've, they've brought to him and he'd look through them and see which ones are fit to actually bear weight. You know, make sure that they don't have any, any big defects, no big cracks running through them. Make sure they're square. It's like the, the equivalent if you're a contractor, you go to Menards and you're looking at the two-by-four to see if it's true and straight, right? Make sure it's, it's not going to be a, some, make a cattywampus house. And so this idea is that, that what, what Peter's getting after, this analogy is that th- there's men who are looking at Jesus and there's this, they have to determine as a builder if they're going to accept Jesus or if they're going to reject Jesus. Him. And those are the only two, two responses. Right? You either come to him, that's, that's the first response, it's laid out right there in verse 1, as you come to him, or number two is to reject him, to deny him, to dis- dismiss him, to renounce him. Those are the only two responses that you have available to you. But here's the thing, some people might be like, you know what? I'm pretty neutral to this Jesus guy. I don't really have an opinion about him. You know, I'd just rather, I'd rather not have an opinion about him. But, but the thing with that is that remaining neutral is just a very subtle way to reject Jesus. See, rejection of Jesus isn't always blatant, like, I hate God, I hate Jesus, I hate Christians. It's not always that blatant. Sometimes it's very subtle. You know what, Jesus, no thanks. You know, it's even polite, maybe. I really appreciate 
what, this, this message that you're telling me, but no, thank you. I'm not interested. See, trying to remain neutral isn't an option because to be neutral is to try to find middle ground, which with Jesus, there is no middle ground. You're either coming to him or you're not. You're either moving toward him with your affections, your thoughts, your actions, your desires, or you're not. But so, so many Christians in our time are trying to like, straddle the middle ground. Trying to get away with not really having a real opinion about Jesus. And when I say Christians, I mean like nominal Christians, people who are like showing up to church. Trying to to straddle the middle ground, but, but the middle ground is a delusion. See, I think the, the middle ground is an invention of Satan. That by, by being neutral or indifferent to Jesus is actually to reject him. But you're just not so forthright with saying that. So Jesus, or, uh, Satan comes in and tries to confuse people. Oh, I come to church and I'm okay with Jesus. But really, your heart is not moving toward him. Your affections aren't moving toward him. You're not coming to him. And so when we think about this, this should cost him self-evaluation. Every Christian should be, should be asking yourself right now, am I coming to Jesus? Is my heart moving toward him, or is it staying still in the middle ground? Are my actions showing the world, my MC family, what Jesus is like, or, or am I stagnant? See, even our culture is trying to get Christians to settle for the middle ground. I think that's probably like one of the biggest issues that's facing the church right now. The, the voice of culture at this point, especially in the Midwest, if you go out to the, to the coast, it's a different story, but in the Midwest, there's a, a tolerance of Christians as long as you keep your church stuff inside the church. Right? Keep it in the four walls, keep it, keep it in your living room, but, but just don't, there's no place for it in the public square. Some Christians kind of like go along with it, right? Oh, well, I don't want to ruffle feathers. I, I don't want to push forward too hard and get some blowback, right? And so they just sort of go along with that. But, but to do that, that is the first step in ruining the church. See, if Jesus is who he says he is, then coming to Jesus is not just a Sunday event. It's not a Sunday event that can be confined to this gymnasium or, or to our new uh, building down the road. Coming to Jesus is an everyday thing. It affects all of your life in every sphere. And we're going to come back to that because that's a lot of the application stuff, but I don't want to get to that now. But right now I want to talk about who and why are the people who are, who are rejecting Jesus. Right? If you think of Jesus, there's probably a caricature that he's you know, actually a pretty nice guy. He's probably got a charming smile, a nice firm handshake. He's, you know, he's just like a, he's a good guy. So why in the world would people be so offended? Or, or would, why would they want to reject Jesus and push him away? And who is they, right? Who are the people doing this? And so to answer this question, like who is they, Peter actually says that, that these men who Jesus 
these men who are rejecting Jesus, he, he has sort of a progressive unfolding of who the, the men are. If you start in the Gospels and Acts, the men who reject Jesus are the, new te- or the, the, the Jewish leaders at the time who are actually responsible for Jesus' death, the people who, who turned Jesus over to Romans to be crucified. And as you keep reading through Paul's letters, right, the people who rejected Jesus, it's not just the religious leaders, it's, it's the whole people of Israel. The whole nation of Israel is responsible for rejecting Jesus. But, but then Peter takes it a step further. He says, not just It's not just Israel. It's not just the religious leaders. It's everyone who does not cling to the mercy of God that's made manifest in Christ. Those who reject Jesus are the ones who remain in spiritual unbirthed. Right, because if, if that's the language Peter uses, right, to to come to Jesus is to be born again, to be reborn. He's saying the people who are not born again are the ones who are rejecting Jesus, consciously, subconsciously, intentionally, unintentionally. And so what Peter does, he draws a line in the sand. He says there are non-believers and there are believers. Or if you want to look at it accurately, there there are non-believers and there are former non-believers. Right, because nobody's born a Christian. There are people, every single Christian God has saved from unbelief and he's brought them to believe. There are people who have faith and there are those who are faithless. What, what is it that makes some people believers and it pushes other people away or other people stumble over this? Why would some people reject Jesus? And if you want to jump down to verse 8, we've got a pretty good answer to that question where Peter quotes Isaiah 8. And he's talking about a stone that people stumble over and they take offense to it. And what that stone that, that Peter's talking about or Isaiah's talking about, that stone is Jesus. Isaiah's pointing forward to Jesus. Peter's pointing back to Jesus, saying that stone is, is Jesus. And the reason that they're stumbling is because they're offended at Jesus. But why is Jesus so offensive? And the reason why is because Jesus is associated with a shameful cross. The original audience that Peter is writing to are embedded in an honor culture, right? It's either honor or shame culture, where the, the primary value in the first century was to be honored. Historian John Eliot says this, the, the, an honor culture is concerned about perception, how others view me and my reputation, so in this scenario, honor is the most desirable thing that, that someone in a culture could, could pursue. And on the flip-flop, right, to be shamed, to be associated with shame, to be thought of as shameful is the least desirable thing someone has. To be thought of poorly, to have an unfavorable status among your peers is literally the worst And here we have Jesus on a shameful cross. Look, and listen to this. The cross is not shameful because it's bloody. The cross is not shameful because it was violent. It's not because it was humiliating for Jesus, though those things are all true. right? Jesus was naked. He was beaten. He was mocked and humiliated. 
See, the reason why they take offense to, to the cross is not because of any of those things. The reason why they take offense to the cross is because it says something shameful about themselves. See, Jesus' crucifixion was unlike any other crucifixion. Jesus' crucifixion was the only crucifixion where an innocent man was killed. Everybody else deserved it. It would have been common time to to walk past uh, a Roman crucifixion and see people hanging, and and you don't even know these people, but you join in and scoffing and mocking. That's just what you did as part of Greco-Roman culture. Right? Those people deserve shame, so I'm going to give them shame. But Jesus is different because he didn't deserve any of that. He was perfect. He, he loved everyone perfectly all the time, yet here he is on a cross. And so what does that say? It doesn't say that Jesus is shameful. It says that the people who put him there ought to be ashamed. That's what the cross says. See, the, the cross of Jesus says something offensive and shameful because it says a hard thing about us. It's not a crude word. It's not untempered. It's not hasty. It's not dishonest. The word of the cross is a hard word against us. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's like, you know, you you just gorge on pizza all week long and then you go stand on a scale. That's a hard word for you. That number's not lying. You have to deal with it. The cross is a hard word for us, and so it's, it's difficult. Anytime there's a hard word against us, it's difficult to wrestle with it, regardless if it's true or not. My mom came into town this week to watch our kids while uh, we, we got to go away to the conference, and we were sitting there, and we were talking about how all my other brothers are messed up, and actually my other brother's not here, so I can say this. So we are talking about them, you know, like they've got issues, and she's like, oh, you kind of have that too. What? Uh-uh, like just instantly, like this defensive, like I don't even, like at this point I'm, I'm still wrestling with it. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm like right in that moment, like no way, no way. Like you just have that knee-jerk reaction to go on the defense. Because it's hard to hear something about yourself that you don't want to be true. Right? Your MC confronts you. Hey, man, it seems like you're trying to to be God in this situation. It seems like you're trying to control your spouse. It seems like you're trying to control your finances. It seems like you're trying to be God. Like, no, I'm not. Oh, it seems like you're being really selfish right now. No, I'm not that. You just, you don't want to hear it. It's hard to hear the hard word about yourself. See, the cross says something that most people back then did not want to hear about themselves. They didn't want to be the kind of people who were associated with shame. And this is what the cross says. It it, it says, hey, look at the cross of Jesus. Now, as you're looking at this, know that this is your trajectory. If you continue in your futile ways, if you continue in your ignorance, this is what it's going to lead to. You are going to be hung up on a cross, maybe not literally, but you're going to be hung up, and you're going to be ashamed. You're going to get to the end, and there's nothing for you to be proud of. There's no honor for you. See, as much as these people are trying to accumulate honor, what's going to happen, they're going to end up in shame because they keep living in their futile, ignorant ways. And what that translates to is they're trying to live life without God. 
bottom line, they have made themselves God. They said, I, I determine what's right for me. Like My God gets in line behind me. Right? If there is a God out there that I sort of have an idea of, right? that God gets in line with my thoughts and ideas, and I'm sure he's 100% on board. But that's the, if your God is always agreeing with you, he's not a God. Right? Your God has been you. So that's what's going on with this culture. They don't want to hear that word. They don't want to hear that they are just immersed in futile ignorance. See, but the same hard word that those people were offended back then is the same hard word that we are confronted with today. It's just as offensive for people today. See, in order to understand the gospel, you must first wrestle with the hard word. Right? There's bad news that precedes the good news. This is one of the ways that we like to frame it up. This is the bad news. You are worse than you think. I can look at it. You can look back at me and say the same thing. I can look at every single one of you and say, I know that you see your sin, but it's worse than that. I know you repented at one point this week, but it's going to come up again. It's not going away. You're worse than you think. You're so sinful that Jesus had to die, that your sin is actually really a big deal. Without God, you are absolutely hopeless, that you have flaws that are too big to cover up and too massive to ignore. See, that's the hard word. And like I was saying, the intrinsic response when we hear these things about us is shame. Right? Even if, even if we don't know if it's completely true yet, like there's a sense of like, I feel ashamed. If this is actually true about me, it says something's wrong with me. I don't like that. I don't like to admit that. And we don't, we're people that don't like to live in shame. I think that's one of the ways that God has designed us. Like we have been designed to experience shame and we feel it. We, either, we can either respond rightly to it and, and, and let it lead us to Jesus and say, hey, I, I, need, I need help. I need a Savior. I need someone to make me right. Or we can defend it. We just ignore the shame and, and sort of like defend it, making excuses, right? Say, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I, look at all the good things that I have to show for myself. Or you say like, I, well, I just feel misunderstood. Or you say to that person who has a hard word for, word for you, you're just not seeing it right. Like you're not getting the whole picture. See, that's that natural reflex of our fallen nature that doesn't allow us to really own it. It's part of sin. Like we're just in sin, and sin wants to keep us in sin. To agree with the hard word of the cross requires you to unbiasedly admit to your shame. Right? If you want to experience the good news of a cross, you need to say, hey, I really am worse than I thought. I can't make any excuses. I can't justify it. I really am that bad. See, people who can't own it, can't admit their need, can't admit that they are worse than they thought, will always miss out on the good news that comes after confession. After times of repentance comes refreshing. That's the second part of the gospel here. 
that you are worse than you thought, but in Christ, you are far more loved than you could ever dare to imagine. See, that's the whole of the gospel. That's the whole of the good news. You're worse than you thought, but you're more loved than you ever thought you could even possibly be. And some people might hear this, but their sinful hearts are still defensive. They're still fuming at the idea that they're actually bad people. Right? And then so they, they push away. And so verse 8, the, the second part of verse 8, says that they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Now the Calvinists in the room, their ears pick up, oh, they're predestination, destined to do. But if you look at where, where this is situated here, he's saying they're destined to stumble because they disobey. Now, we've already come face to face with this idea of obedience. Peter, Peter's been using this before, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, as obedient children live holy lives toward God. But the, the obedience that Peter's talking about isn't about following the rules, right? These people are not rejecting Jesus because they can't live the right way. See, obedience, when you boil it down to its simplest form, obedience is a twofold process of rightly hearing and rightly responding. And Peter says their disobedience isn't to the law or to rules, their disobedience is to the word. So he's saying they're, not, they're either not hearing the word rightly so they can respond rightly, or they're rightly hearing the word and they don't like it and they can't respond rightly. Does that make sense? See, it's, it's not about the law. It's about hearing the word and what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 25. The word is not the Bible and the laws of the Bible. The word is the good news of God. The word is Jesus and his gospel. See, finding out you're worse than you thought is not good news. That is, that's an equation for just piling shame on yourself. It's, it's debilitating if that's the further it goes. But to hear that you are worse than your thought and simultaneously more love than you could ever dare to hope, that's good news. Right? No matter how messy you are, no matter what your sins were this week, you're still loved. That's good news. But to get to the new good news, you have to accept the hard truth about yourself. If you don't, your heart is hard, and it only gets harder. And what happens with, when people have a hard heart, they have a hard heart towards God, but they also project their, their, their anger or, or offense onto Christians as well. See, they tend to not only reject God, but reject Christians too. And that's what the people in, that Peter is writing to are experiencing, that the culture at large is rejecting them, pushing them to the margins, saying, hey, you don't have a voice. We don't want you here. What you're saying, we don't want to be any part of. Right? Family, friends, neighbors, even strangers are lashing out against the people that Peter is writing to. They're hostile toward him. They have disdain for the Christians. Now, in, a fir- in the first century, remember, this is, this is the honor culture here. In the first century, by being brutally and relentlessly pushed to the margins, this is the shame piece of an honor culture. They're trying to push them out, take the honor away from them, ruin their credibility. John Elliott, comment, uh, historian again, says this, that Peter's reedy, readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants 
endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to the conventional values and standards of conduct. Does that sound familiar? See, the, the resistance that Christians are feeling today and you know what, and some of you, like, you hear me talk about this, and it's like, I don't really feel this. I don't feel this. My, my neighbors are still pretty friendly to me. We are kind of like, we're, we're the last part of the country to really catch on to things. Like, on the coast, like, when we were sitting with Jeff Vanderstel, he's from, from the West Coast, up in Seattle, probably the most unchurched uh, part of the country, and they're like, he literally had a guy that he was standing next to at a football game say that he hates pastors. We hate Christians. Right, that's, that's the trend of our culture. People don't like Christians. And it's becoming more and more vocal. And if you're on social media, you follow a tr- Twitter feed, you find, you find somebody who's saying really prophetic things, Russell Moore or Ray Ortland or somebody who's unapologetically gospel-centered, you're going to follow their line of tweets and there's tons of people berating them, telling them they're idiots, that they don't have a voice, that they shouldn't be talking. That's the trend of our culture. So your culture is trying to squeeze Christians to keep us quiet, to keep us to mind our own business. And they're doing it through... Mar- marginalization and manipulation. So Peter, he's got a message for the Christians who are experiencing this, right? He, he's saying, just like Jesus was rejected, right? Just like Jesus is a living stone, you too are living stones and you're probably gonna get rejected as well. Right, that's what he's saying in verse five when he starts out, you yourselves are living stones, He's drawing a connection to Jesus and his followers, that there's a, there's a resemblance there. That we're like him in the sense that people are going to reject us. And here's the shocking thing. Jesus was the most loving, other-minded person to ever walk the earth. Literally did nothing wrong, never was arrogant. He was always measured, always loving, always kind, always gracious. Yet people still hated him, rejected him. And if this is true of Jesus, who is the perfect human being, how much more true is this of of Christians who get it wrong? Because if you're a Christian, you have to admit that you get it wrong. Jesus is the only perfect Christian. And so people are going to look at us and they're going to say, I don't want anything to do with you. I think the time is coming when we lose relationships because they don't want to listen to the good news that we have. We're talking about friends and family, people who we have a history with. They'll try to talk bad about you, they'll try to shame you, try to get you to change your mind, try to silence you. And if you can just sit in that moment, if you can think of what it's like to lose a family member, say, I don't want anything to do with you. And here's a shocking thing. like This is really common among among uh, Muslim people who, who convert to Christianity, like their families, like, if you're a Christian, you're done. You're dead to us. It just shows the faith that they have to say, I'm willing to, to lay everything down on the altar to have Jesus. Christian, can we be like that? 
are you willing to follow Jesus all in like that? That everything I have, I'm willing to sacrifice if it just means I have Jesus who's my all in all. But in that moment, when you feel that rejection, you feel people cutting you off, it's so hard. You feel that tension. You want to give in. You don't want to be like that. So Peter has a message for people who are exhausted, that are emotionally just spent. He says, he speaks to their shame, and he quotes Isaiah 40 in verse 6. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And he goes on, Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. See, Peter's flipping the script here on the honor-shame culture. Right? He's saying those people who think they have honor, who are trying to shame you to conform to their ways, actually, the, the roles are reversed. Because you believe, you will not be shamed. Because you believe, you will be honored. And unfortunately, those people who thought they have honor will realize that it's empty. See, as maligned as you might be on behalf of Christ, your name will be vindicated. If you know Jesus is going to make things right, that gives us like a willingness to step into the suffering. And the bad news is the people who reject Jesus, the people who are trying to heap shame upon Christians, will find that their honor is fleeting. They will forever stumble over Jesus. And let me ask you this. Is there anything more humiliating than falling? Think of it. You just trip. You trip and fall. Slip on the ice. It's humiliating. One, it hurts, but your ego hurts even worse. Right? Especially if somebody saw you do it. It's humiliating to stumble and trip and fall. But that's what eternity is like for those people who reject Jesus. Now, if you're a person who is rejecting Jesus, either, either blatantly or subtly, I want to offer some hope to you. Because just because you're rejecting Jesus, because you're not moving toward Jesus, not because you're coming to Jesus, doesn't mean that that's the way things always have to be. God has ample grace and mercy for you. Peter, think of this, Peter, the guy who's writing this book, writing this letter to, to people right now, Peter rejected Jesus the night he was betrayed. Three times. Three times someone came to him and said, hey, don't you know Jesus? Nope. Never heard of him. The Apostle Paul, right, responsible for writing about a third of the New Testament, third or half of the New Testament, he says, he was in the process of killing Christians, right? Not only was he hostile towards God, he was killing Christians, or at least responsible for the death of Christians. There's grace for both of those men. When Jesus comes back, when Jesus is resurrected, he comes to Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Jesus. Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Three times Jesus gives him the opportunity to restate his embrace of Jesus. Shows up to Paul, knocks him right off his horse. 
Saul, because at that point his, his name's Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing my people? That's what it took. It took Peter uh, to deny Jesus three times. It took Paul to realize that he was killing Christians, killing the people that belonged to the Lord, to realize that they were worse than they thought. But here, there's good news for those men. They're worse than they thought, but there is so much more love than they could ever dare to dream of. See, and that's what's true of you and me. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of your posture towards Jesus up to this moment, if you've been stagnant or if you've been flat out rebelling against him, there's an opportunity of grace to move toward Jesus today. The Spirit is calling you in. But like I said in the opening, what God is doing response to Jesus doesn't just affect your eternity, it affects the day-to-day, how you live now, your implications. Because God looks at Jesus, right? He's, God is in this, right? He says, he's, uh, uh, as you come to the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You see, God is the one who looks at Jesus and says, this is my beloved son. I love him. He's precious to me. And he, because he looks at Jesus that way, he looks at us that way because we are hidden in Christ. And so we can come to him, that we are precious to him and we're chosen to be recipients of grace. And God doesn't just choose us as, as individuals and leave us kind of scattered. God chooses us and brings us together. Verse 5 goes on, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Now this has got Old Testament language all over. He's talking about a temple, the spiritual house, right? The temple back in the day was where the physical presence, the physical dwelling place of God was on earth. Beautiful temple. Took years and years to build. But the thing about the temple is that only one person can go into the holy of holy places where God actually is. One person can go one time a year. But here in this scenario, God is saying, I'm building a new temple out of living stones, which are you Christians, you who are born again, who are now alive in Christ. I'm building a new temple that, that not only am I going to, to, to live in and you can come into, but it's you. You are the spiritual house that I'm building that I'm going to move into. See, this is why we look at the church. The church isn't a building. This, these are just pieces of steel and concrete. The church is the people of God, the living stones that God has made alive. Listen, as exciting as this new building is, right, I'm hyped about it. This building is nothing in comparison to what God is building with his people. And it, it is not related to any physical structure, God is building his church. He's putting the people side by side. So let me build out some of these daily implications that, which will manifest in your life if you are choosing Jesus, if you are moving toward, if you're coming toward Jesus, this is what your life is going to look like. First of all, you come to him. Right? Now, this isn't just like a one-time, yeah, I came to Jesus, I said a prayer way back when, now we're good. This is a daily coming to Jesus. This is daily saying, 
waking up, man, I am worse than I thought. I know I'm going to do sinful things that I knew I, I didn't think I was capable of doing today. I'm going to have thoughts. I'm going to have actions. I'm going to have desires that I feel like should not be part of me, but for some reason they are. It's a morning waking up. I am worse than I thought, but then resting in the good news, more love than I could ever dare. See, when you, when you come to him daily, that becomes the foundation of life. That is the cornerstone of your life. That is what your life is built upon. See, but it doesn't end there because Peter says you're, you're, you're being built together as this spiritual home, this temple. But, but you're also being built together to function as a priesthood. Now, this implies two things. One, the first thing, priests are other people focused. Right? The job of priests is to mediate, to, to go to God on behalf of other people, to be an ambassador between, a middleman between God and those who, who, who want to be close to God. And so to be a priest means that you have to be others-focused as well as being Godwardly focused. But Peter says you're a priesthood. You're not a bunch of priests sort of scattered. You're a priesthood. You're a collective body of priests. So this means that you are going to be rooted in community, a community that's, that's concerned about all of the same things, a community that's founded upon the gospel, And so what this looks like, as Christians, as we're being maligned, rejected, there's hostility towards us, what do we do? We function as priests for the people we love, the people we know that do not yet know Jesus. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. To be a priest means to go to God in prayer on their behalf. God, will you change their heart toward you? Because that's, no matter, no matter what. See, this is, that's like the biggest piece of evangelism. Evangelism isn't about having the right words to say. Evangelism is, is having a posture to know that God is the one who's going to work in their heart, in their life. So as a priesthood, we pray for those, even those people who are persecuting us, because we know that without Jesus, their future is shameful. And God has been so gracious to bring us in and to experience honor and glory and life. And the last thing, as I close here, as priests, we offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what he's saying. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God through Jesus Christ. You look at this, I, I, I thought the Old Testament sacrifices were over, right? You know, we, we got to sacrifice lambs again, we got cattle. What is this? But what Peter is talking about here is following the example of the sacrifice of Christ. The man who laid down his life for his friends. See, when you give yourself to God, when you say, God, I'm all in, I'm, I'm following you, you will also give yourself to the community of believers that God has put around you and to the mission of God. See, you're going to get cozy with the other living stones, with your missional community, right? This is going to require sacrifice. It, it requires time. It requires finances. It requires just a lot of emotional capacity. It requires a lot of things. 
And so we sacrifice. We ask, how can I best minister to the people around me? How can I help them walk with Jesus? How can I meet physical needs? How can I counsel? But this also means you sacrifice for the mission. Your money, your free time, your preference, hobbies. That you're willing to lay all of that down and say, Jesus, I'm all in. And there's a key piece here. How verse 5 ends. To do all this through Jesus Christ. Now, the thing that I hate about leaving application towards the end is because it's like, all right, guys, go get it. Go do it. Prove yourself. That's not it. That's anti-gospel. See, Peter's saying to do these things and you'll be accepted through Jesus Christ. Not because of what you do, but because you're accepted through Jesus Christ. That the only reason that this means anything is because Jesus was willing to be the stone rejected so that we could be the living stones brought in. See, none of this is to make ourselves acceptable to God. This happens because we've already been made accepted. We've already been accepted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reality that you, through your spirit, are building for yourself a spiritual house where Christians sacrifice and minister to one another, support each other in in the, the rage and the hostility that we might face from outsiders. But Father, I pray that you would give us a a missionary bent toward those people, to love them like you loved us. We were enemies of you, not just like indifferent. We were enemies of you, but you have caused us to be made alive. Thank you, Jesus. Now we come to the table to remember that we are worse than we thought, that we were so bad, that we are so bad, that Jesus had to die. Yet remember that we are so loved that Jesus did it willingly so that we may live. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.